Noel. The Lord is coming. The Lord is with us. It is Christmas, and we are absolutely here. Listen, I have uh, um, cough drops in my pocket for any of you that need them after the service. When I'm handing out Jolly Ranchers, you can have one. Um, I'll do that for you. It's been kind of that kind of a week, um, and suddenly we are the week before what we call the Christmas Sunday morning, the closest Sunday before Christmas to Christmas is what we refer to as Christmas Sunday. And we're in this series called The Spirit of Christmas, the holly jolly spirit of Christmas. What is the spirit of Christmas this year? And as we go into that um, um, season, as we continue on in this season, we want this spirit of Christmas upon us. And what is that going to be? Certainly the Lord came, came as a child, Emmanuel, God with us, spoken of thousands of years before um, to King Ahaz, and yet here he was in the fulfillment in Jerusalem just a couple thousand years, or excuse me, in Bethlehem just a couple of thousand years ago. Last week, Pastor Janice talked about the spirit of waiting. That the spirit of anticipation is the spirit of waiting, and I don't know about you, but I hate waiting. I, I'm just not a good waiter. I am not. I am not somebody that's like, yes, yes, please, tell me that you bought me a present, but don't tell me what it is for a couple of more weeks so that I can just sit here in agony not knowing, okay? And, and so they asked me, they said, well, would you rather know? And it's like, yes, until the night when I open it, then I wished I didn't know so that I can be surprised all over again. The flip side of that is I'm not a good waiter when I give gifts either. Um, early in my marriage, I was even worse. I was absolutely horrible. I would give my wife a gift, and as she began to open it, I would say, hurry up, it's a, and then I would tell her what it was. Um, and she would just stop opening it, looking at me, and she would say, you're ruining it for me. I said, I know, but it works for me. I get pretty excited. Um, but we've come to terms. We've come to an understanding. Today I want to talk about the spirit of love. The holly jolly spirit of Christmas is a spirit of love. And I want to talk about a guy that very rarely ever, ever, ever gets talked about. I know in the 26 years that I've been a pastor, I've rarely ever talked about this individual. I've rarely ever talked about his part of the Christmas story. And so I want to take you back to Luke 2. Obviously, anybody that's doing Christmas stories is probably camping out in Luke 2 somehow, some way, uh, Matthew 1 and 2 as well. But in Luke 2, Luke 2 begins this way, okay? And we're going to talk about some of these things. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census would be taken of the entire Roman world. This is the first census that was, took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, okay? So let's get the political situation there because for whatever reason, Luke, who's a Greek, not a Jew, thinks you need to understand the political situation that Jesus Christ was born into, all right? And everyone went to his own town to register. Real quick, what's your town? In your head, think, what's your town? Where were you born? When people say, hey, where were you born? What do you say? What do you say? What do you say? See, that's where Jesus had to be born. That's where they, uh, Joseph had to go back to. So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, to the town of David, because he belonged to the house in the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him while, and, was expecting, excuse me, and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. And she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them at the inn. And so as we look at this thing, let's just begin to look at what's going on, okay? Um, begin with, Caesar Augustus is in charge. Now, I don't know about you, but if I say who's the first emperor of Rome, what are you going to say? Julius Caesar. 
Julius Caesar was never an emperor of Rome, from my study and understanding. He never was. He was a dictator, okay? And, and he, didn't, he was never part, uh, or I guess he ushered in, but he was never specifically the, the uh, emperor of the Roman Empire, okay? He was the dictator of the Roman Republic. And he, in his leadership, caused the Roman or was a part of the Roman Republic coming to a close, and then he was stabbed and killed as he was trying to usher in uh, an empire. But believe it or not, this particular Caesar, Caesar Augustus Octavius, he was the first actual emperor of the Roman Empire. Okay? Now, why do you need to know all that? You don't. But for some reason, Luke starts this story out giving us a political understanding of what's going on in and around Jerusalem and Bethlehem. So it behooves us just to do a little bit of research. Besides that, I had some time this week because I had the sermon way ahead of time and I wanted to read up on all these Juliuses. And so I wanted to sound like I at least worked for my living. And so I did. You know, it's absolutely amazing. I can't tell you exactly how many people were at the census, even though the Romans took it in Bethlehem, but I can tell you the exact date that, um, Julia, uh, um, excuse me, that Caesar Augustus was born. He was literally born September 23rd, 63 years before Christ. He was born September 23rd. Oh, and by the way, he died on the 19th of August, 14 years after when Jesus was 14 depending on how you take zero. Is zero when he was three years old or zero when he was born, okay? But at the point that Jesus was roughly 14 years of age, Caesar Augustus died. He initiated what is known as Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, and Rome for all of those years, for the next uh, 200 years, was free of major, major warfare conflicts. They had some skirmishes, but he initiated, because of his leadership, what is known as Pax Romana. Absolutely amazing. The, the census is pretty well self-described. It's counting described as an opportunity to tax people. I don't know about you, but I, I'm kind of ready to start throwing the tea back in the bay. And I, listen, I'm not getting political on you because I don't care. Because I'm getting taxed by everybody, right? You ever bought something for somebody for Christmas? Okay, so you got paid a salary. You looked at that salary and you thought, oh my word, between the state and the federal government, they've all taken their tax. Yes, they have. And then you go to buy your loved one something for Christmas and you hand them money and they say, oh, wait a minute, and tax. And if it's something that they want to get rid of and they sell it back, you know, like if you're buying somebody a brand new Lexus for Christmas because there's so many people doing that, there's so many people doing that that one of you posted a meme with my name on it with a Mercedes with a bow on it and said, this sounds like something you said in a sermon. Well, there you go. I said it again. Okay? So if you use that vehicle up until it's not worth anything and you go ahead and sell it for $1,500, guess what? You get taxed on the $1,500. You got taxed for making the money. You got taxed for spending the money. And you got taxed for taking a loss on the car that you drove for the last couple of years. Isn't it crazy? So this census... This census was nothing more than a means by which the Roman Empire could get everybody to come home so we can tax them. And there we are, we're taxing them again. You know what the newest tax we're being threatened with is? 
Insurance tax. If you pay insurance on anything and it's recorded anywhere, you're going to be taxed on the amount of, of uh, money that you spend on your insurance premiums. That's the next thing that's going on in, in our region. It's like, ah, you want to pull your hair out and say, I just want to go to Bethlehem. That's all I want to do. I want to go to Bethlehem and I want to pay one tax. I want to pay one tax in Bethlehem. That's all I want to do. Well, that's what was going on. Everybody was headed there so they could be squeezed for money. All right. I've often wondered, what about the crowd in Bethlehem? Mary and Joseph, you know, they travel, 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 yay, and they do all this. But what about, how big was the crowd in Bethlehem? Any idea? When you close your eyes and you think, yay, Christmas in Bethlehem, what, what goes through your mind as far as how many people are there? Do, do you think about, like, um, Bangladesh you know, when they show the marketplace and people can't hardly get through. Do you think about cities like that around the world today where there are so many people in so small uh, an area that they just can't get through it? Maybe you think, uh, no, Pastor Joe, I think it's kind of like going to the mall. Um, not like in the mall, but in traffic. You know, nobody goes to the mall together anymore. Everybody drives their own vehicle. And it's like, what is that all about? Wait till your spouse comes home and both get in the same vehicle and go together. You say, no, then she'll see what I get her. Separate in the mall, okay, or Amazon.com, okay? I'm not here like, they're not sponsoring this message, but I'm just telling you, they're our best friend this year. They really are. I have not had hardly, hardly any bad attitude toward drivers this year at all because I'm not out there with you, Okay? If I was out there with you, or on that day or two that I was, and I honked at you, I'm almost sorry, okay? I just, I are. I, I really am almost, move along when the light turns green, okay? Just move along. It's okay. Archaeologists say that the, the town of Bethlehem probably had 300 people in it before the census. And that probably during the census, it really didn't rise to anything much over 1,000 people or 1,500. 1,500 people. That's the story. What did you think? <clears throat> in, in my brain, I kid you not, I think, you know, Jerusalem just went to Bethlehem and there was, you know, a million people and Joseph's trying to find his way through. But if you take a city of 300 people, there's probably one or two inns in it. One or two, maybe three. I, I, I don't know how they figured it. But in my head, there was like a Best Western on every single corner, and they were all full. It's Rupp Arena, you know, and the, all the hotels in the downtown. You know, it's like you can't find, you just want to go to your kids, like, like you know, recital at UK, um, you know, for the piano thing, but you can't get one because there's basketball going on, see? And they're all full, but that's not the way it was. There was, a, there was somebody running a, 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 think more Airbnb. Think more like that. Somebody's running, they, they've built just big enough. They don't have like 400 rooms. They have like three or four rooms in an inn in Jesus' day in a city of 300 people. People were running Airbnbs. It was about like that. And so it's crazy to me that I can tell you exactly when Caesar Augustus was born, but I can't for some reason tell you how many people were in Bethlehem specifically. It's like, shouldn't that have been a Roman number? They're the ones that were saying it had to be. There should have been a record somewhere, but, but it's lost to us. And, and his crew, um, um, Jesus' crew. Who, who traveled with Jesus? His family would have gone, right? 
It's all based upon the father. Where is the father from? And so if, if uh, Joseph had to go, then so did his brothers, and so did his father, so did his grandfather, so did his uncles, and so on and so on and so on. And so you've got Joseph and Mary traveling. And, and listen, it, it, just because I'm going back to the town of my birth doesn't mean I have to take my wife. But he did. Joseph took his wife. And I know that there's a lot of um, discussion about, you know, because we want to paint the right picture for your Hallmark Christmas card. How old was Joseph versus how old was Mary? And, you know, some people are like, well, he's like 85 and she's like 13. And it's like, oh my word, seriously? Uh, come on. You know, we're talking about a carpenter, not somebody with a big dowry who's going to sell his daughter off to somebody for a political connection. We're talking about somebody who was probably raised because Joseph was a carpenter, Jesus was a carpenter, Joseph's grandfather, our father was probably a carpenter. So I, I'm somebody that believes that they were a lot closer to the same age. I just do. But in any case, they're traveling as a family unit trying to get to the same place. And then how are they going? If you've been around the vineyard for the last 10 years, and you'll hear me say, or you'll remember hearing me say, that Hallmark does a great job of putting Mary on a donkey on her way to um, uh, Bethlehem so that you can hand that card out to your loved ones and say, hey, Merry Christmas to you all. But the truth of the matter is, we don't have anything that actually puts Mary on the donkey in Scripture. We don't. <laughs> it's 80 miles, roughly 80 miles, from Galilee, Nazareth, all the way down to Bethlehem. 80 miles Okay, on a good day, it's a four-day walk. On a long day, it's a seven-day walk. It's somewhere between there for the average person. Now, look, this woman is somewhere around eight, eight and a half um, months pregnant. So, you know, they had to stop at every single convenience store on the way so she could pee. Okay, because there's something about little tiny babies inside of women kicking on their bladders. And I believe you when you say that. They kick on your bladder. No doubt in my mind. So, men, just pull over. Okay? But if you put Mary on the donkey and they're on their way to Bethlehem, Joseph had to keep pulling over. And if Joseph pulled over, did his dad pull over? Did his grandfather pull over? Did his uncle pull over? Did everybody stop the whole migration to Bethlehem so that Mary could go to the bathroom at the convenience store? I don't know. What I do know is she had to go walk or ride the donkey. Either one does not sound comfortable for a woman eight and a half months pregnant. Eighty miles. Closest I've ever come to that is I was out flying my falcon one time. Actually, I was flying my red-tailed hawk one time, and I wanted to hunt bunnies. But it's always good to have a beagle dog to run the, the, um, the bunnies up to make them move around because the snow is about this deep. And so I needed the bunnies to move, but I didn't have a beagle dog because, well, I was poor. But I still was a falconer, and I had a good time. But I did have a wife, and she would make a great beagle dog. If she would just say, ho, 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 when the bunny ran, because that's what you're supposed to, literally, that's what you say. When the bunny takes off, you say, ho, 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 and the hawk will go kill the bunny, and it's great. Problem was, my wife was eight and a half months pregnant. <clears throat> All she had to wear was this big wool, beautiful white cape that I'd bought her. And so I said, would you come hunting with me? She said, are you kidding? I said, not really. I just, I thought maybe we could hurry, you know, this little girl along a little bit if you should come with me. You know, maybe it's time for her to be born. And by the way, I need somebody to help me move the rabbits just a little bit. <laughs> I have the picture somewhere. I never did it again. <laughs> some, some things you just learn and you only do one time, okay? That's called education, and the result of that really bad decision is called wisdom, okay? If you apply it correctly. <laughs> If you don't learn from it, that's called failing backwards, according to John Maxwell, and you're just a loser, okay? So don't 
do that. Learn from your mistakes. And so anyway, that's what's going on. 80 miles. But they didn't call ahead for a hotel. They had no means of calling ahead and saying, hey, at the inn is their room. They made no reservations. And so they walked into town and seriously, come on, you got no room for the Son of God. In the midst of this story, remember, nobody knew it was the Son of God except Mary and Joseph. Other people thought they were out of their ever-loving minds. Thought they were lunatics. Sure, God came over you somehow, did whatever he did, and you're pregnant with a child that's celestial. Yeah, whatever. You ever tried to book a hotel room, or excuse me, have you ever tried to get a hotel room when you didn't plan ahead and you just rolled into a town? You ever been turned away? Walked up and, you know, knocked on the door and said, hey, we need a room for the night, and, and they look you up one side and down the other, and they say, yeah, not tonight, we're full. We rolled into Nashville one time, my wife and I, I was a pastor at the time, but uh, we were on our motorcycle. We just wanted to take a trip. We went down through Chattanooga, came back up, wanted to stay in Nashville, wanted to walk up and down the streets where all the um, country music wannabes were going to be playing because there are some outstanding wannabes that are just that close to making it. And we thought we were going to hear some good music. My wife walked in. She said, I'll see if the Hampton Inn, and I will out them right now, I will see if the Hampton Inn has a room for us. And she walked into this posh upscale marble in her T-shirt that was sweaty, dirty, her head wrap on, her leather chair caps on and uh, she walked in walked up to the door and said they and she they said to her can I help you and she says this is what she'll tell you she'll say they looked at me and I said yes my husband and I are wondering if you have a room for a night she said and never in my life until that moment she said that man looked me up one side and down the other and said I don't think so we're full and she came back out, and she was madder than a hornet. Oh, my word. She was about to go back in there and Sunday school those folks. And if you don't know what that means, I'll tell you later, okay? But she was about to read it to them. And I said, let it go. Let it go. We will go to a different hotel. We found a wonderful hotel. Had a big swimming pool. Looks like a, a, a guitar. It's in uh, you know, National Geographic somewhere, but it's awesome. And so we had a wonderful time. The flip side of that is... The flip side of that is we rolled into a hotel on the West Coast one time on a motorcycle. Same scenario. She came back out and she's like, they don't have a room for us. And I said, just a minute. They've got to have a room for us. And she said, well, if you think they got a room for you, you go handle it yourself. And I, we've been on a bike a long time that day and she was tired, okay? And I thought, I better man up and go be the man. You maybe have heard me tell this story before. And I went in and I talked to this young lady and I said, look, here's the deal. And she said, well, uh, we don't have a room. And I said, actually, I think it was on the phone with her. And I said, uh, I know when you say that, you really have one room. In case the president of your hotel chain shows up at your door, you keep one room until a certain time, and then you'll let it out. And she got real quiet, and I just, this is what I, I said, can I be special tonight? Can I be that guy? And she said, yes, you can. And we showed up at that hotel and sat down. They took us to a room that had bathrobes and all kinds of things, had a limo waiting on us for our use that night. Uh, it was the crazy, we paid through the nose for it, but <laughs> by George, I got her that room that she said I could not get her. <clears throat> and that's how it was. All right? And so that's what happened. But I wonder what would have happened if Joseph would have slipped the guy a 20 or a 50 or a $100, you know? Said, hey, listen, can I be the guy tonight? Come on. Can we be special? She's eight and a half months pregnant. She's, she's doing these. Come on, dude, seriously. You got no room. You can't. I wonder how the story would have ended up if the, the innkeeper actually had 
a room. It's that guy that I want to talk about, the innkeeper. I have never seen a movie where the innkeeper was nice. Now, I'm not saying you haven't. I'm just saying I haven't. I've never seen the innkeeper portrayed as, wow, you guys are desperate, and I... And this is killing me, but there is nothing that I can do. And listen, I, I, man, I, I can't even give you my bed. I, I, I don't know what, you know what? Listen, I've only, all I've got is a barn outside, but I will go put down some fresh hay. I will put down some place for you to spread a blanket, your cloak. I will do something for you. Please do not go away into the night and sleep out behind the boulder or what, wherever you, I'm going to do something for you. Please let me try. I've never seen that movie. All I ever see from the innkeepers, nah, we got no room for you. Bam, shut the door. Right? Isn't that what we normally see? What if this guy actually had a Christmas spirit, even though he did not know that it was Christmas? What if he actually had a spirit that said, I can do for one what I wish I could do for everyone? What if this man actually did go out of his way? What if the real story is that this man went out of his way to let them be special that night, but he gave them the best that he could give them? What if this man actually went out to the barn and told the people he had told the same thing to, get out of the barn, it belongs to this pregnant lady? What if that's the real story? You see, Luke doesn't camp on that because that's not an important part of what Luke is trying to do for a man named Theophilus. He's trying to tell him about Jesus, not the innkeeper. But what if as Christian people, we got that part wrong in our heads because there's nothing that says it one way or the other in Scripture. It doesn't say he was mean. It doesn't say he didn't care. It just says he had to say, look, I don't have any more rooms in the house. What if he walked out to the barn, said, wait here, walked out to the barn and said, listen, you three, I love you, but you're men, you can handle this. You got to camp out back. You got to camp. There's a pregnant lady that needs this spot and we're going to fluff some new hay and we're going to give her a place to stay because she might be just having that baby tonight after that 80-mile walk. What about? Maybe he had the spirit of love there in a village of 300 people that was swelling with people by the minute and pressure was on him and things were going crazy, maybe, just maybe, he found a way to protect them from the elements like God wants to protect us. But we look at it and we say, really, that's the best he could do for a pregnant woman with the Son of God in her belly? He didn't know that. All he saw was a young girl that was pregnant that needed a place. Maybe the spirit of Christmas is a spirit of love. Maybe as this man went through it, we could hear Jesus saying, as the Father has loved me, so I've loved you. Now remain in my love, and if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and re remain in his love. I have told you all this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down, lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father I've made known to you. 
You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. That fruit is discipleship. It's disciples. And so that whatever you ask in my name will be given to you. And this is my command. This is my command. This is what Jesus says in the book of John, in John chapter 15. And this is my command, that you love one another. Maybe he didn't have room in the inn, but do you still have love for him? See, love is a verb. Love is not what you feel, but this is why Jesus can command us to love God, to love our neighbor, to love ourselves, because love becomes the action of our lives and our understanding of God. It's a direct correlation. When we understand God, we understand love. When we understand forgiveness, we understand grace and mercy. That is the act of love as we go into Christmas. In this passage, Jesus tells us that as God loved him, he's loved us. So he came to us, he walked with us, he heals us, he touches us, he spoke to us, he was punished for us, he died for us, and he was raised from the grave by his Father for us. Love is the activity of God in our lives as our, our example to other people. That's the truth. Jesus came down and said, this is how it's done. As often as we say, God, seriously, you want us to do that? The answer is yes, and then he showed us this is how it's done, and it's not always easy. Jesus says we stay in this love by keeping his commands, by obeying. We remain in the love of God by our actions and our obedience. The Bible becomes crucial to our understanding of how to love our enemies, how to love our friends, and how to love God. In this passage, God said, Jesus says, greater love is no one than this to lay down his life for one's own friends. This passage says that. This passage is often misused. When Jesus says, greater love has no man, uh, excuse me, greater love has no man than this to lay down his life for his friends, he's not talking about somebody fighting on his friend's behalf. And I'm not, I'm not dissing anybody. I'm sticking to the scripture. I need you to grab a hold of this scripture. And I need you to understand it. This is a picture of somebody, it's better to say it this way. You have been in a courtroom, the judge has dropped the gavel, he has sentenced you to your, for your crime, and the sentence is, you have to die. That's what this passage is talking about. To, to make this passage say or relate to any other thing on this planet is a travesty of what Jesus did for you on Calvary. Because this is the picture of somebody who says, Joe Wood must die. And so instead he says, I will go take Joe Wood's place. Not I will go fight for Joe Wood. I will go take Joe Wood's place and die willingly. And as a sheep is led to its slaughter, I won't say a word. I will just go Take his place. See, this is not a feeling of love. This is an act of love. I will die for you. And that's what Jesus did. He died instead of us having to die. So the spirit of Christmas is a spirit of love. The spirit of love is a spirit of forgiveness. Jesus came that we might be forgiven. And it really is, ladies and gentlemen, that simple. To be forgiven is to be restored to the family, to the power and to the providence of God as our provider, as our Father. To dwell on a matter is to invite bitterness. 
To gossip about a matter is to spread discord and divisions and is listed even as an abomination. To let a matter go and to understand it, not to pretend it didn't happen, but to deal with it, put it behind you, is to, be, to, 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 how, to approach, let me say it that way, to approach forgiveness. Letting it go does not mean it didn't happen. It means I'm not trying to extract payment for what you did to me. But I'm letting you know that you did this to me. Forgiveness is not ignoring the situation. It's addressing the situation. It's not being afraid to. But it's also the point at which we have to move forward. If we keep going back and drinking from that well, that well is toxic for us, and it will create bitterness. Matthew challenges us in forgiveness, and he says, if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive you. And that is just a difficult scripture, isn't it? That's in the Sermon on the Mount. This is the core of Jesus' teaching. This is what he wants you and I to grab a hold of. If we forgive other people, then we need to recognize as Christians, God will forgive us. If we choose not to forgive other people, God says, or Jesus says, then, then God, who's our Father, is not going to forgive us. Jesus said it this way, freely you've received, so freely give. Freely the teachings, freely the grace, freely the, forgiving, uh, the forgiveness, and freely the providence, the care, and the provision. Freely you have been given, so freely give. And it's easy for us. Man, you have knocked it out of the park with more than a manger. You have. That is rocking the pictures that you sent to us. You were careful with the people. You loved on them. You did amazing things. You built beds for them. Their cat got on it. They're bad cat owners. But anyway, that's okay. They still get a free bed. You loved these people so much that just like that, you bought 25 beds at over $300 a kit for us to take to 25 people. And not only that, then you came out on a nasty, dreary, rainy day and you went and built them for them. And then you got out of your comfort zone and prayed for them and I hope invited them to church if they did not have a church. That's love. But God also asks us in love to forgive. The spirit of Christmas of Jesus coming to this earth is a spirit of forgiveness because he came to forgive us. We forgive the innkeeper in the story. We need to. We need to. He didn't have room. What would you have done in his situation? It, it was just a woman. It wasn't the Son of God to him. What could you possibly have done with a population of your town of 300 to 400 people swelling by the second? He forgave Herod. He died on the cross to forgive Herod for killing all of those baby boys two years of, old, of, of age and under. That's what Jesus died for. It was a heinous crime. We forgive the betrayer to come, the Judas that followed him around. We forgive the men that made up stories. You ever thought or heard a, a passage on these guys that went around and told lies so that Jesus would be condemned so that he could be killed? They made up stories. We forgive the soldiers that crucified him and rolled the dice because he was dying for their sins. We forgive the religious leaders that got really, really jealous of his popularity. So they wanted him dead. We forgive the friends that ran out that night. They ran away. They scattered when it looked scary. We forgive the, those friends. We forgive those who have not been born and yet will be called sinners. We forgive those. Um, we forgive because we're not called to fix the world, you and I. We're called to forgive, bring the forgiveness and offer forgiveness that you and I have received. 
Freely you've received, so freely God says we should give. So what is the thing that God has forgiven you of that you pray nobody ever, ever, ever finds out about in your life? What is that one little area that God knows about but you've still got a padlock on that thing. You put the armoire against it. If you don't know what an armoire is, look it up. Okay? But you put the armoire against that in your life. You've decorated the wall around it so nobody will know that there is something so dark that they might not want to be around you in that hole. What is that thing that God has actually forgiven you of but you live in fear of? What is that? Is it an action? Is it a thought? Is it an omission? The last thing is that sometimes love is choosing not to assign bad motive to good behavior. Sometimes when we approach the man that has the inn and the barn, it might be loving for us instead of saying, oh, that wicked guy, how could he throw that pregnant young lady out into the barn? Maybe instead we begin to assign good motives to him and say, look at that wonderful man that as busy as he was and with as many people walking in the door looking for a room, he stopped and took time to make sure that she was bedded and protected in the barn. What if we began to assign love to people's behavior that we don't understand? What if when I'm driving on the highway and my wife says, do you really think that guy got in his car and said, I'm going to go mess up Joe Wood's life today. Watch me. Maybe I listen for once and say, you know what? He doesn't even know who I am. So he did not do that on purpose. You know, you prepare a sermon like this and you want to talk about forgiveness and you want to talk about grace and you want to do this and all of a sudden the Lord's got you preparing a sermon for something that's coming in your life that you don't see coming. I'm going to surprise my mom. I thought I was going to. I'm clearly not going to now so I can say it out loud for Christmas. Christmas Day, I'm going to jump in an airplane and go see her, stay for a couple of days, turn around and come back. But I thought I was going to surprise my siblings and instead I got a call from one of them kind of lining me out for being the last person to know that I was coming down there and read me the riot act and I thought, oh my word. And then, you know, we started texting back and forth and you know how that goes. That goes downhill fast. You need to hear voices and intonements and, and intonations and things like that when you're having a conversation. You don't need black and white letters just speaking to you because they always go south. And they did go south. And I began to say to myself, maybe I'm assigning bad motives to good intentions. And so instead, we got on the phone and talked about it. And sure enough, that's exactly what I was doing. That's exactly what they were doing. I don't want to out him because he's my only brother, but um, I, just, I just want to say, <laughs> I just want to say, it ended well. But it took some intention to stop and say, we have to live in forgiveness, not give forgiveness. We got to live in it. Which means maybe when we're going through the Christmas season, we don't ascribe bad intentions. That person that snatched that last toy that you want, maybe instead of saying they're evil, we could say they're scared to death because that's what they wanted to get their child who only wanted one thing and they were thinking the same thing you did. I'm going to get that last one. Maybe we could ascribe good intentions to them. Paul wrote to the church in Philippi and he said, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, any common sharing in the Spirit, any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, 
being one in spirit and of mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility value others above yourselves, not looking for your own interests, but also each of you to the interests of others. Wow, that's a tough thing. And notice Paul doesn't say, you should judge other people. He said, you should judge you and then ascribe love to other people. They're doing the best they can with what they've got. They were raised with different filters than I was raised with. They're going through a different kind of a depression, a different kind of a struggle. Their children are in a different place. Their relationships have different kinds of, of hurdles than mine do. Maybe I should ascribe some love to them because Jesus still died for these people as an act of love. The innkeeper didn't have room. Imagine the gift of God to love people that chose to hate him. Herod murdered thousands, religious leaders, I've talked about all that, and the Romans finally killed him. But we recognize that Jesus still died for them. Because of love, Jesus came down. Because of love, Jesus lived, gave, healed, cured. Because of love, Jesus died silently, yet willingly in your place for you. Because you have never done anything so good as you deserve to go to heaven. But sometimes we think we have when we compare ourselves to somebody else. We do. But we haven't. Because of love, God raised him from the dead. Because of love, he sent his Holy Spirit to live in us, to remind us to love other people. The hardest thing that Jesus ever said was love your enemy. Love your enemy. Who is your enemy locally? Who's your enemy relationally? Who's your enemy nationally? Who's your enemy internationally? The hardest thing Jesus ever said was that as disciples of me on this earth, your role is to love these people my way. Not because they love you back, but because you didn't deserve it to begin with. That calls you and I to different lines of work, different responsibilities on the planet. Different, there's a whole lot of hypothetical situations, I understand. But you and I were called to be the light of the world. And that light is love. Jesus said, by your love will all men know that you're my disciples. The way you love each other is the way people will know that you're my disciples. Jesus said this morning in John 15, this command I give you as I've loved you, as God has loved me, I've loved you, you go love other people. Paul said the greatest gift of all the gifts of the Spirit is the ability to love. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. He gets done with tongues, speaking in tongues, healings, words of knowledge, and he says, but pursue the greatest, the greatest gift. Pursue the greatest one. And then he launches into 1 Corinthians 13. If I don't have love, I have nothing. Who is God asking you to love this Christmas? What's the name that just came to your mind and you said, oh, seriously, Pastor, today, Christmas? If it's making you choke up, I've got cough drops. I'm trying to give you a spiritual cough drop today. 
you got to swallow it. Suck on it. Meditate on it. And then swallow it. Who is God asking you to love and forgive? Not be their best friend. He didn't ask us to be their best friend. He said, who do we need to forgive? Who is that? Listen to me. Christmas will be Christmas when you and I act in a spirit of love. That's how we'll know that Christmas is Christmas inside of us. Not when we don't have room, but when we are willing to go the extra mile to make sure there's fresh hay in the only space that we've got in our lives. And that, that might be just a prayer for somebody that, that you're thinking of right now. Love doesn't mean it doesn't hurt to think about it. Love doesn't mean you didn't go through pain. Love doesn't mean you don't wish things could be different. Love means you're not trying to extract payment from them by gossiping, gossiping about it and telling everybody about it to get them on your side. That's what love is. Love is mowing their lawn, making them a cake, dropping off groceries, and you don't even have to have a conversation with them. You just want to do something that says, in spite of everything going on, I need to love you because that's what I'm called to do. Fathers, we come before you. There's a lot of things swimming around in our hearts and mind, and we want Frosty the Snowman, and we want Holly Jolly Christmas. But I know it comes with obedience and it comes with love. I know it comes when we're at work watching the sheep. It comes, God, when we're in the temple and we see the baby walk in. It comes when you tell us to get out of our comfort zone. It comes when you confront us with something to do that is so inconvenient that we're just not sure we can live through it and there's no way because we have anxiety. But you called us to it, God. And you've asked us to be obedient. You gave us your Holy Spirit not so that we could turn him down but so that we could turn up the kingdom of God in our lives. Help us to bite our tongues. Help us to think a good thought. Help us to get rid of the filters that cause us to see the bad in everything instead of the good in some things that needs to be seen. Help us, God, to be love on this planet in Jesus' name. Amen.